Good morning. Good Good to see you here. I'm glad to be here. Wasn't feeling the best early part of this week, and I was getting texts and phone calls. Brother, praying for you. Praying you get well soon. And then rumor got out that if I wasn't here, Blake would fill in, so people just quit praying all of a sudden. (laughs) I didn't get no more of them. Well, too bad. God answered your first prayer. But if you would open up to the book of Acts, today we'll finish up chapter, the end of chapter 4 and begin chapter 5. These two, uh, these two units run together. Remember the chapter verses and breaks are not original with Scripture. You know, they're put here for, for our convenience as a tool. But as we're wading through the waters of this book of Acts, you know, we're kind of just getting into it good. We've noted... A couple of themes. You know, we noted where we began. We began basically with a small group of believers. And we noted where we'll end in Acts 28, where the churches and the gospel are just moving throughout the known world. So without question, the book of Acts is going to outline the explosion of the gospel. That's going to be one of its themes. Another theme we've noticed has been the church goes public. You've heard that said going from a small group to here by chapter 5, tens of thousands of believers. Which goes back to the explosion of the gospel. But it's gone also from Jesus taking the brunt of the persecution to now the apostles seem to be the lightning rod. And not just the apostles. In Acts 7, we're running to a man named Stephen who will become the first Christian martyr, and he was not an apostle. So it's not solely the apostles, which is exactly why I think these Christians in Acts 4 were praying so fervently. They're praying for boldness. That's why. Persecution's coming. They need boldness. They need that confidence. And there will be needs that need to be met because they will be persecuted. These are some of the themes that are going to be kind of filtered through here. So the gospel's going forth. People are being saved. Chapter 4, those attacks are coming. So we have the explosion of the gospel. We have the persecution of the church. Those attacks are coming from the outside of chap- in chapter 4. External attacks. And those attacks in chapter 4 that we're going to finish up today actually began in chapter 3. Chapter 3, you know, there's a man who's lame from birth. And he's over 40 years old. That much we know. Been in this condition for a long time. He's healed. And this creates quite the buzz. And the religious leaders arrest Peter and John. They threaten them. Peter boldly states that the threats of persecution and even the persecution itself will not silence him. Then they're released. They reunite with the church, reunite with that body of believers. And the church is praying for boldness. They know they need God's help to be bold. Maybe Peter had warned them about that. You know, Peter thought he would be bold on his own two feet. And God says, no, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So maybe Peter was able to just stress that to him. Guys, you need to pray. You need to pray that the Spirit will be with you. 
because boldness will quickly turn to fear on your own. And God answers their prayers. They're filled with the Spirit, and they speak with boldness. That's where we end in verse 31. So in verses 32 through 37, the first unit we're going to look at, what does life in a Spirit-filled church look like? Is it just praying and evangelism? Well, let's see. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll just hold up there for now. So we see this first unit is going to be, we're going to see just a, uh, a picture of a devoted heart, hearts of devotion. We're going to see in the next section, it's going to be hearts of deceit. We're going to go from devotion to deceit. We're actually going to see what, what we could say the men behind the mask. Because one day we'll all stand before God and, and we'll be just completely unmasked. Here, Barnabas, his, when the mask is torn down, his heart is genuine. Right? He has a very charitable heart. He, he's an encouragement to all who run into him. We'll read this as we go throughout Acts. Barnabas is always spoken of highly. And we'll see in the next section a couple when the mask is torn off them, it's, it's ugly. It's an ugly truth. So the men behind the mask, just kind of keep that in mind. But it says in verse 32, now remember they've been praying for boldness. God had answered their prayer. They're preaching. They're proclaiming the, the gospel with, with great boldness. And it says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The full number. That's the, the Greek word plethos, and that may not mean nothing to you, but I had a baseball coach who would like to try to just expand our vocabulary, which was real limited, uh, and he would use these words, and I, I remember this one in particular. He would say, Farley, you made a plethora of mistakes this game. And so just putting a sentence, you know what that means. It means great in number. <laughs> so we all know he was kidding. <laughs> but nonetheless, that still sticks. I know that word. He expanded it just a little bit. But there's, a, there's great in number. There, there's, there's many. There's maybe tens of thousands at this point. This full number of those who believe. One heart, one soul. What do we see here? We see unity. We see oneness. This, this can't be overlooked. When Jesus prayed... In John 17, he prayed this, that they may be one. Jesus prayed for their unity. And they're united. That's something about one body, united, unity. And it says, it goes on, 
And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. No one said, not one. Not even one, as some translations put it. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. This is not a command to sell all your possessions. We'll, we'll, we'll get this laid out for us in the next chapter. And even if you sold your possessions, you was not even obligated to give, to give it to the church. You were no, under no obligation to do that. This isn't forced. This isn't coerced communism. The point is, wherever there was a need, that need was met. They valued people over possessions. Verse 33, And with great power, mega power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great, mega grace was upon them all. They had, they had prayed, in verse 29, to continue to speak with boldness. Verse 31, that prayer is answered. They're continuing to speak with boldness. And here we see it. With great power, with great boldness, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. They were giving their testimony. That word is in the imperfect tense in Greek. And what that means is they were doing it again and again and again and again and again. Over and over and over and over with great boldness. And they were bold because they had seen the risen Christ. Peter's like, I know what I saw. I saw the tomb empty. I ate with him. I walked with him. He cooked for us for 40 days. That's exactly why he says up in verse 20, when they threatened him, they tried to silence him. He says, look, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. That's why he's so bold. He's seen it. He heard it. He walked with them. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with the Savior. You couldn't silence Peter. And those who were, who were trying to threaten this little body, they're mainly the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, and the Sadducees were the majority of them at this particular point in time, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So Peter's message actually contradicted their theology. But Peter could care less if a risen Christ didn't fit their theology. The truth was offensive, but it was the truth. And Peter, as he says, could not stop speaking about the things which he had seen and heard. He boldly declares the gospel again and again and again and again and again. The truth, the gospel came at great risk and it came at great cost. Let's look in 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So they're, they're one heart, they're one soul, no one's saying that this, that's mine, 
That's mine. You know, they didn't, they didn't have common ownership, but they didn't treat it as it's mine hands off. And so there was not a needy person among them, and then we see four. Here's why there's not a needy person among them. But there's not a needy person among them because their needs were being met. But it does ask the question, why would there be needy people among them? I mean, there's always needy people, but it seems like maybe, maybe there's more here. Well, here's one thing to keep in mind. Conversion and a commitment to Christ cost. It cost them. It brought isolation. It brought social distancing. We're not the first to come up with that, right? Families may have turned on them. Friends turned on them. May have lost jobs. Committing to Christ cost these people way more than it cost us. But you have this body of believers, this oneness, this one heart, one soul, this unity in this church. It was a safe haven. It was a safe haven for those believers. Almost Eden-like. Look, this is something that we don't grasp. In some countries, if you win a Muslim to Christ, he may very well be without family, friends, home, jobs, And he, by the way, is going to have needs. But sadly, we like a gospel presentation with no strings attached. And you know what no strings attached means. It's almost, you get these offers in the mail, or it used to be, maybe you're walking through the mall or whatever. Hey, try this, try this. No strings attached. No, no commitment, just try it. Look, we like to, to knock both sides of our gospel presentation, we like with no strings attached. We, we correctly knock the, we correctly knock the other side and we criticize those who want to receive Christ w- without being united to Him. Those who, without following Him, Jesus is my Savior, but He's not my Lord, right? No strings attached. That, that's the salvation side of it, and that's no gospel at all. But let's look at the other side of it, our presentation of it. When we share the gospel and we really pray, they receive it. But sure hope they don't need further assistance. Sure hope they don't need discipleship. No friendship. I hope they don't have any real needs. I'll share the gospel with you, but just don't be a burden to me. Well, maybe that's why we don't reach out to certain groups. Because we know it's going to come with needs. But when these, this group is sharing the gospel, it's coming with needs. And they're going to meet those needs at a cost to, of the, their own, right? They're going to be needy. But we say, my wants are more important than your needs. And so we essentially treat their soul as rubbish. So the question is, do we really value our stuff of higher value than their soul? But being united with Christ, every aspect of our lives, there are strings attached. We don't present a no-strings-attached gospel. Following Jesus will cost you. 
When we receive, remember, there are strings attached. When someone becomes part of our body, for them, there are strings attached. You know, we need to be so united of one heart, one soul, so intertwined. I guess I was thinking about this. Titus is seven. He's kind of gotten fishing here lately. And you know how it is with kids fishing. Sometimes they'll cast a line and it's just a, that line becomes like a bird nest, right? And you'll do your best to kind of pick it apart and untangle it. And then at some point you just, just cut it and go to the next one, right? I think we need to be that way as a body. So when we're attacked, when Satan and his minions attack, he can't pick us apart as easily and just kind of isolate us. We need to be so united, so intertwined that he just says, go to the next one. But there's not a needy person among this group. Four tells us here, here's why there's not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. Everyone who had means chipped in. All seems to have sold some, but it doesn't seem that they sold all. They sold when it was necessary to meet the need. The NIV actually puts it, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. Look, they didn't sell all their possessions and just live in abject poverty. They didn't. We, we actually read in verse 37 where it says Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him. Look, did he not have a house? We can assume he did. Look, I'm not trying to pour cold water on, on what Barnabas did, not at all. I'm just saying they all didn't sell everything they have. It wasn't just a complete emptying. Actually, in Acts chapter 12, the sister of Barnabas still has a house. But the house that she has in Acts chapter 12, she's opened it up to the church. The church is coming there, meeting there, praying there. So the, the question as we're reading this and kind of just letting it sink in is if one of your fellow church members had a real need, would you sell some of your possessions to meet that need? Maybe it's a piece of land. I don't know. In this case, Barnabas, it was an old car. Maybe a signed baseball. Maybe a spare set of golf clubs. Maybe a sheep, a goat, a cow. I don't know what you have. But the question is, can we not part with those things to help a brother or sister in need? Because when Paul describes the church as a body in 1 Corinthians 12, he actually says, when one rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one suffers, all suffer. Not man, I hate it. Praying for you. We all Suffer. Verse 36, 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This introduces, it's going to serve two purposes. It introduces us to Barnabas, who will play a prominent role in the spreading of the gospel as we kind of work through the book of Acts. It also serves as an, as an example of, 
of what this united, spirit-filled body was willing to do. Now, we've already seen this, this phrase here. We've already seen this love for one another displayed. We saw this in Acts 2. In Acts 2, 44, it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any has needs. We've seen this before in Acts 2. Now we're seeing it again. But here's what's interesting. In Acts 2 and in here in Acts 4, both times we see this attitude, it follows them being filled with the Spirit. Acts 2, they're filled with the Spirit, and they're, they're selling their possessions and helping those in needs. Here, we just read the previous passage. They were filled with the Spirit, and what are they doing? They're helping those in needs, even if it costs them. They're praying and acting. <laughs> praying and acting. So the, the question is this. Why is it? Why is it when people want to be filled with the Spirit like those on the day of Pentecost? You know, I'd love to be filled with the Spirit like those on the day of Pentecost. They, they're not talking about a spirit of selflessness which I'm willing to divulge of something that means something to me to help you out. What they mean is they want to speak in tongues. They want the showy gifts. They never desire the spirit of being willing to sell something of value to help others. And that is exactly what a spirit-filled church looks like. But this unity, this oneness, this care, this concern for one another truly meets a couple of markers we read in the New Testament. One in particular, Philippians 2, says this. Philippians 2, 3 says, Regard one another as more important than yourself. By the way, that's in the context of Christ, not, you know, kind of coming to earth, humbling himself, dying in our stead. That's in that context of Philippians 2. Also, here's one, 1 Timothy 6. Because in this country, we're all wealthy. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to serve, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That is from the Apostle Paul to Timothy concerning the rich in this present age. Here's another one, 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let, not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John asked in 1 John 3 that if anyone has the world's good, you have possessions, you have stuff that God has graciously blessed you with, and you see your brother in need, and you close your heart against them, how does God's love abide in you? 1 John 3, 16. 
Truly, we are to regard others as more important than ourselves. And that's exactly what this group is doing here. But not all feel this way. Not all feel this way. Look with me in chapter 5. But, but, that's a big one. Okay? A lot of times we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but we don't link it to what Barnabas has done. We don't, we don't see the connection, but there's plainly a connection there in Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. But the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So you read this. And one of the things you want to you question is, why did he include this? Like, hey, Luke, you know, we, we, we could have left this out. But this is inspired by God. And God does not present him in a way, present himself in a way that's not accurate, that's not reality. God doesn't do that. Ananias and Sapphira, on the other hand, in case you notice, they're trying to misrepresent themselves, trying to make themselves appear more righteous and generous and holy. But not so with our Lord. Our Lord, our Lord gives us the facts, the reality. And so just the fact to me that this is in here serves several purposes. One, it proves the veracity of Scripture, the, the honest and truthfulness of Scripture. Because any man-made religion would have left this out. And two, it strikes the contrast between the genuineness of Barnabas that we just read at the end of chapter 4 and the facade or the pretense of a charitable heart of Ananias and Sapphira. So there's, a, there's lots of reasons that these need to be preached together, and I'm glad that it ended up working out this way. Now, in verse 1, we see, remember, the end of chapter 4, or beginning, about middle of chapter 4, they had arrested Peter and, and John, and those persecutions, those attacks were external. They were coming upon the apostles from the outside. Here, we transition now to Satan is starting to attack them from the inside. These are internal attacks. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Right away, we take note, this is going to stand contrasted against what Barnabas did. 
This property, by the way, in case you're wondering, well, maybe this is a house or whatever. Anyway, if you look down in verse 8, this property is land. Because in verse 8, Peter asked Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So this property is land. Barnabas sold a field. They're selling the land. The similarities are, are obvious to us. And also make a mental note that he did this with his wife Sapphira. He did it in verse 2 with her knowledge. A New Testament Bonnie and Clyde. Just the women who are thinking, I wish my husband would include me more. I bet she... <laughs> think about that, you know. Come on. Okay, so Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold some property and with her knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Sold the property, kept back some, brought only part of it. Kept back for himself. Uh, that's the Greek word nosfizo. Now look, you have it here in verse 2. We have it in verse 3. And it's only used one more time in all of Scripture. And it's in Titus 2. And there the word is translated stealing. That is the word that Luke chose to use. Stealing. They have stole. They kept back for themselves. They stole. They only brought part of the proceeds. Part of the proceeds of the sale and laid at the apostles' feet. But then Peter said to Ananias, verse 3, Why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived in your heart, you've not lied to man, but to God? Just real, one quick thing before we really get into the heart of this. If you notice in verse 3, it says they lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, it says what? They've lied to to God. I just you know, I think Peter refers to the Holy Spirit there as God. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It is God. The Spirit is just as much part of the Godhead as the Son. I just thought we'd touch on that while we're here. But you have to see, to me, Peter's heart in this. Why? Why, why, why would you do this? Nobody's keeping score. So it's, it's plain as, we're, that as we read into this chapter 4. That's why I said it, I'm sorry, verse 4, as I said it when we was speaking of what Barnabas is doing. He says, you know, while it remained unsold, it was yours. You could do what you wanted to with it. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Yes, it was yours. It wasn't common property. This isn't communism. It was yours. You could do what you want to it, what you want with it. And even after you sold the money, it was at your disposal. You didn't have to give any of it or all of it or some of it to the church. Why would you do this? Well, the obvious reason is apparently Barnabas had got some applause, some pats on the back for, for his generosity. So what do you say we sell this piece of land and we'll just 
give it all to the church. Whether they knew going into it, they were going to mislead the church. I don't know. Or whether it sold for a whole lot more than, it thought, than they thought it would. And then they start crawfishing on that. It's common. You hear it all the time. You know, people say the, maybe the lottery is up to $100 million or something. If I won that, I wouldn't mind paying $35 million in taxes. $65 million is still a whole lot of money until somebody gives you $100 million. Then you just don't want to part with any of it. And this is where they are. They had promised to do this, this big gift, this big offering. But they just couldn't bear to part with the money. It has a lot to do with greed, but it has a whole lot more to do with hypocrisy. They wanted, they wanted the church to think well of them. Maybe make them president of some board, some, the benevolent fund or something. But you, you see, Peter's like, why? Why would you do this? You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to make these promises. Why would you do it? You see this, why? Why is it you've done this? Why have you done this? On and on and on, Peter's heart's pouring out. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not only lied to man, you've lied to God. And then we read in verse 5, that Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He fell down and breathed his last. Look, remember, what was Luke's occupation? It's a physician, right? He doesn't medically try to explain this away. It's COVID-19, stand back, right? No, he doesn't. Luke, the physician, knows this is judgment from God. To me, that just means more than you know, maybe a fisherman's take on what caused this death. This is a physician's take on what caused it. He knows this is judgment from God. And then it says at the end of verse 5, and great fear came upon them all. We'll see this again in verse 11. When we began this in verse 33 of chapter 4, what did it say there? Great grace was upon them all. Now what? Great fear is upon them all. See, we, we kind of move there. Great grace, the great fear. The word fear here is the Greek word phobos. You can hear the word phobia in that, like arachnophobia, an intense fear of spiders. The point is this isn't shocking. They're not stunned. They're not alarmed. They're terrified. Great fear fell upon them all. And the young men rose up, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Then we're going to see his better half. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. Why did she not go with him originally? These are just things you're kind of asking yourself, just trying to... Why does she show up now after three hours? Was his delay giving her anxiety? I bet he broke. I bet he, I bet he caved. He probably told him exactly what we got. Maybe. Maybe she thought, hey, he's over there getting all the praise by himself. Guess I better go over there and receive mine. Just expecting applause when she came through the door. Just, there she is. There. Thank you, Sapphira, for giving to the Lord. 
Instead, silence. Fear. Fear. There's no rejoicing. There's fear in this room. Again, I'm just kind of stunned as the, at the transitions because earlier, like I said, they went from great grace to great fear. Up in verse 1, it says, or verse 2, that she did this with his knowledge. They have knowledge. Now in verse 7, they don't have knowledge. It says she doesn't know, not knowing what's going on. So earlier, these two, Ananias and Sapphira, they're the only ones that know what's going on, and everyone else is in the dark. Now... Everyone else knows what's going on, and she's in the dark. Just kind of a, a, an odd little change. So she goes in, not knowing what happened. Then Peter speaks up in verse 8. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And I'm sure he named the price there. And she said yes for so much. The people assembled together, I can only imagine, had to be praying. Surely, surely he did this without her knowledge. There's no way two of them would agree to do this. It's pointless. Why would they do this? She says yes for so much. Now, in, in my mind, she just rattled it right back off. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. No second guess in their decision. She was complicit. That's what Scripture is teaching us. She's complicit. So if you're there, and you know what's coming, you had no idea what to expect with Ananias. You had no idea what to expect. But now, you know what's coming. You know what's going to happen now that Sapphira's been confronted. So Peter, again... <laughs> His heart, again, I just see it here, but Peter said to her in verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? How, how is it that you've agreed to do this? Just in, in utter disbelief that they would do such a thing. He says plainly, how is it that you've agreed together? Okay, this is interesting. I like these kind of things. But they've agreed together. That is the Greek word, symphino. Symphino. Are you hearing it? Symphon, symphony. That's, the, that's where we get our word symphony. So the point is, like in a symphony, all those instruments are playing in unison. That doesn't happen by accident. That's exactly what they're doing. They're on the same page. They'd practice this. They'd rehearse this. They had created their alibi before they even created the sin or committed the crime. Kind of reminds you of the, the story of the, the four boys that decided they were going to skip school one day. We're going to say we have a flat tire. Okay, all on the same page. Same page? Sure. Skip school, show up the next day, what happened? Flat tire. Teacher says, fine, it's good. She spread them out. Gave me each a piece of paper and a pen and said, write down which tire was flat. <laughs> they were in a pickle. But here, they seem to have rehearsed this. They were ready for everything. They were in symphony, as Scripture says. But they've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Testing the Spirit. 
All right, where do we go with this? Are, are, they, are they testing? You know, gold is actually tested by fire to prove its purity. So, so are they testing God's purity here? It, it, are, are they, do they expect God to say, oh, well, they lied, but they still gave a whole lot. Every penny counts. They didn't give what they promised. Still, we could use the money. Kind of need them. But God doesn't need them. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our money. And He sure doesn't approve of their hypocrisy. And she, in verse 10, immediately she fell down at His feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. She, like her husband, fell at the feet of the apostles. The place where they vowed to lay down their money, instead she laid down her life. The young men, who had been gone for three hours burying Ananias, they come back in, see her dead, take her up, take her back, bury her by her husband. And then we see in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church, And upon all who heard these things, great fear came upon the whole church. This is a similar statement that we saw up in verse 5. You know, it shows where we kind of move from great grace to great fear. So here, let me me ask you this. It said, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. So as we're sitting here as a church, as a body of believers, we have now heard these things. <laughs> We're no different than, than this group. So the question is, are, are we not rebuked? Are we not chastened? Uh, do we think that the sins that lay in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira don't abide in us? Or do we think now God doesn't care as much anymore? Or maybe he's lowered his standard just a tick? Does he just need us now? Look, Christian hypocrisy has to be at an all-time high. It has to be. Our society almost demands it, obsessed with how we appear, and not just how we dress or or, 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 our figure, but we're obsessed with what others think. And we so carefully craft our post on social media, as we spoke of this morning, and how others will think of us. What we put on Facebook just something to make us look like a good parent. Maybe make us look like good Christians. Something to make us look generous. Look at Brian, just holding that little baby here. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were perceived as being generous. We have to see that. We would have placed them in charge of our outreach team. But God called them to the mat. And their facade of being a super Christian was destroyed in a moment. They wanted the perception of being generous without being generous. Maybe we want the perception of of, of being a Christ follower without actually following Him. The perception of being willing to help, but not 
really being willing to help. You know, you see this with a group of people where they show up at, to eat a meal and someone knows that someone else is going to pay for it. And like, Let me get mine. They go, no, I got it. I got it. Well, of course you're going to offer that when you know the answer is no. Like, I, Tracy, me help you clean the house. And I'm praying, no, please say no. Please say no. That's, that's you know, we, we want to offer this, but we really don't want to do it. But God is telling us this for a reason. And so we're reading the Word of God. He's challenging us just as much as He did them. Why? Why, why would you do this? Why would you, why would you, why would you test them? You know, this, this, this is a joke, but I do like to pick it, Tracy. When the church comes down, I say, hey, baby, church is coming over. You may want to get the Bibles, dust them off, open them up. You may put a set of glasses beside them and a note pen and act like we read these things, but... But look, God knows our hearts, and that's, that's kind of twofold. There's times it's good because we didn't mean something the way someone took it, and God knows us. And that can be terrifying as well. When we're trying to present uh, ourselves as, as Christians or in a light that's just not accurate, and God will unmask us. He unmasked these, this couple. And we do need to see the fact that these two Highly likely were believers. They were part of that first group. What kind of marriage is that? That neither one of them checked the other. Sapphira didn't say, Ananias, this, this, is, this is not keeping with God's Word. Maybe we need to rethink this. Or Ananias told Sapphira, look, I, that's, that's a bad idea, honey. We don't, I know we said that we'd do it, but we don't need to do that. There's just no... There's no discipleship even inside their marriage. And we need to have discipleships inside our marriage. But I pray that we just don't read this and think that this doesn't apply to us, that, that we, we have these, these sins laying in our heart as well. We like to be highly thought of. We do. I pray that what we commit to doing for the Lord, we actually follow through with. And if we don't, maybe we don't at least continue the lie that they did. That no, 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 we sold it. It was that's right, that's right. We can do better. We must do better because one day we will stand before the Lord completely unmasked. He will see us as the men behind the mask that we spoke at the beginning. If you would please stand.